Right, Philippians, chapter 3. <clears throat> um, what we were dealing with last week was here Paul dealing with the, the circumcision party. Uh, I think we'll, we'll just start by reading verse 2 again. That's one we did last time, and then we'll just uh, read, read verse 3. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He says, for we are the true circumcision, who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now we saw last time Paul was dealing with the circumcision party. They were Christians, uh, they were into false teaching. We saw exactly what Paul's attitude was to Christians who were teaching things that weren't biblical. Um, and, of course, the thing about the circumcision party, they were saying that, you know, Gentile Christians had to come under the law and therefore um, had to uh, get circumcised as um, the first point. Um, and so Paul, having dealt with the circumcision party, you know, fundamentally, look, you know, don't take any notice of what they say. They want you to get circumcised. He says, a load of rubbish. Don't take any notice of them whatsoever. And then he goes on to say, for we are the true circumcision. Now, Last week, when we were dealing with the whole thing about the law, what we were seeing is that everything in the Old Testament, like the Mosaic Law and the covenant that God had with Israel, uh, that absolutely everything in that covenant, uh, I mean, firstly, it was only between God and the Jews, but it was all merely an outward picture of an inner reality that hadn't yet come through, as it were. Everything in the Old Testament, under the law, etc., etc., it was all there merely to look ahead and to picture what Jesus was eventually going to do on the cross. I mean, for instance, simple example, the Passover lamb. Now, that was part of the law, the Passover, sacrifice the lamb. Uh, you know, take the blood and, you know, sort of put the blood on their door and stuff like that, and that meant that God's judgment wasn't going to come anywhere near them because the blood of the sacrificed lamb was on their door. It was simply a picture of what Jesus was going to do when he came, that because Jesus died on the cross, we accept that, we trust him, we've turned to him, we follow him, and therefore God's judgment doesn't come near us because we've put our faith in Jesus for salvation and salvation we had. And the whole thing about the Passover and everything else, the temple, everything about the temple, all the worship, uh, you know, everything like that, it was all to symbolise uh, the, the, you know, what was going to be the case when Jesus himself came. And everything under the law was merely a picture, an external picture of an inward reality that had not yet come to being. And it all pointed forward to Jesus, and once Jesus came, it all fell away. When you turn the light up full blast, the shadows vanish. All right, just just go to Hebrews chapter eight. We'll actually see this. The book of Hebrews is, uh, you know, sort of expressly written, you know, to make this this point. Uh, as as the name suggests, it was written to Jews. It's written to Jewish Christians. Let's just uh, go to Hebrews eight. Of course, remembering the whole point, Paul's dealing with the false teaching of the circumcision party who were saying you've got to come under the Old Testament law. Hebrews uh, chapter 8, and uh, we'll start reading from verse 6. And uh, he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. He's saying, look, the mere fact there's a second covenant means that the first one wasn't faultless, because it was only to do a particular job. It was never there to actually save. Um, and then 
Uh, if you go down into, into verse 10, all right, and, and here the writer is quoting Jeremiah, and he says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my, my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow, or everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards them, and I will remember their sins no more. And in verse 13, the writer says, In speaking of a new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the point is, the old sort of thing, it just dealt with externals, all right? And here, quoting from old Jeremiah, we have God saying, but one day something better is going to come along. It won't be that my laws are, you know, have been written on tablets of stone. They're going to be written on your heart. It won't be a question of outward changes. It will be, I'm going to change you from the inside. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus came. And so therefore, he says, look, therefore, the old law, it's passing away. It's ready to vanish. Let it go, because it's done its job. It was only an external symbol. And now the reality has come in Jesus, so the law has fallen away. All right. Now, obviously, that includes circumcision as well. Even circumcision, which made you a Jew, <laughs> all right, or a Jewish man at any rate, okay? And of course the circumcision party are saying you've got to be circumcised. Even that was an outward thing, and it was now gone. A defunct symbol with no purpose to it, all right? Why? Because the reality of what that was merely a symbol of had come. So therefore, what was circumcision there to show us? It was an outward symbol, but what of? an outward symbol of something that was going to happen inside people. So what was it a symbol of? If you go to Romans 2, Paul deals with it. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. In the Old Testament, circumcision, it made you a Jew, but it was finally only a symbol of something. What was it a symbol of? And in Romans chapter 2 and verse 29, Paul says, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. And Paul's saying the idea of circumcision was there to symbolise something that was ultimately going to happen, not in someone's uh, foreskin, but in their heart, something inward that was going to change them. And in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, it was there already, even in the Old. All the prophets were coming through saying, and yet there's going to be something new. It was clear from the Old Testament that the Old Testament wasn't the end of the story. If you go to Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. And this is the Lord speaking to Israel through Moses. And he says this, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Alright? The externals were only there under the law to foreshadow something that was going to happen inwardly. Alright? And circumcision, what is it? It's literally the cutting away of the flesh. 
Now, in the Bible, what does the flesh stand for? Our sinful natures. And when you were circumcised, your flesh was cut away. So what was it standing for? It was standing with the fact, you know, for the fact that God wanted to deal with people's sinful hearts. He wanted to circumcise, to cut, to do away with their sinful hearts and sinful natures. Now, the truth is that just like physical circumcision, it hurts. Of course it hurts. Circumcision is a wonderful picture of God dealing with us. It's a painful thing. So what Paul is saying, circumcision, okay, was only there in the Old Testament to foreshadow something. Now the reality is here in Jesus. And what's the reality? The reality is that God is cutting away the flesh. God is cutting away the sinful nature. Can you see? But boy, like physical circumcision, it hurts. It's a picture of God dealing with us. Go back into Hebrews chapter 4. And this is why Paul is saying, it's not people who have been physically circumcised who are right with God. He says it's people who have been circumcised in their hearts. It's people who have let God deal with them inwardly, inside, at the very heart of their being. And uh, in, in Hebrews, and we'll actually see um, reference here to how God, get, you know, sort of does this. I mean, remember, circumcision, scalpel, all right? Okay, Hebrews chapter 4, starting from verse 12. He says, for the word of God, and this is talking about God's declared word. You know, the scriptures are God's declared word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I mean, we're not even talking scalpels here. We're talking something sharper, all right? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now what is the writer saying here? He's saying that God's word is, is sharper than a sword. You know, think of it like a sword, a scalpel, alright? And it's cutting. It's doing a work of cutting. Now what is the word of God doing a job of cutting at? What is the word of God cutting away at? Right, well it says it's dividing the soul and the spirit. And it's dividing off the joints and the marrow. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, the soul is us. Is us what we do in our own strength. Spirit is the life of Jesus. Because our spirits are one with Jesus. That is the means whereby Jesus lives his life through us. So what it's saying here, the word of God, it cuts off what is merely of us from what is actually of Jesus. He says it cuts off the joints and marrow. Joints, i.e. the bones, are mere movement. But marrow, that's where the life of the bone is. Can you see? A skeleton doesn't have marrow. It's dead. It's got bones. It's got joints. It's got no life in it. And of course, what the writer's saying here is that for ourselves, what's of us is death. It's dead. It, it produces nothing of any value to God whatsoever. But the life of God within us, the marrow of the bones, that's Jesus, that brings life. And the picture here is of the word of God slicing away that which is just of us and no good, but leaving behind that which is of God, the life of Jesus in us, the marrow, the life in the bones. Now, the circumcision party, the Old Testament law, what was that? It was going through the motions. Anyone can go through the movements. But it's not the movements that are the point. 
it's where the energy of those movements, it's the source of them. Is it just what we're doing, or is it what God is doing through us? And the Word of God comes in, and what it's doing, it's all the time, it's slicing us up. And it's slicing away that which is just of us, us in the flesh. Good old religious, self-righteous us. Cutting that away, just like the foreskin is disposed of, leaving behind that which is of Jesus. And he says as well that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God, it does this scalpel thing, cutting away that which is of the flesh. But it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that word discern there, can mean two things in the Greek. It means a judge, you know, as in someone who is there to sort of make a judgment, to decide on a case, or a critic, a critic. Not in the sense of someone ripping you to bits, but a critic is someone who makes an assessment. Uh, a critic of a film makes an assessment of the film. All right. So what it's got here is that the Word of God, it comes in. Now, we've established you can have movement without life. You can do all the right things, but that can still be of the flesh. All right. Now, the point is this. The Word of God exposes our motives, our intentions. Now, can you see? You can do the right thing with the wrong motive. You can do the correct thing with a sinful intention. As the word of God comes in slicing us up. Do you see? It exposes in our lives that which is of the flesh so that God can deal with it. And in verse 13, it says, And before him no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing, obviously, is hidden from the Lord. He knows the truth about our hearts. He knows why we did that. He knows why we said that. You know, we might know why we think we did, or stuff like that, but, you know, the Lord is not mocked, obviously. He, we are laid bare before him. And so the word of God comes in, and it circumcises the heart. It cuts away the flesh. It deals with the sinful nature. And it's the word of God that does it. The word of God sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is precisely why so many people, even Christians, find the word of God too hot for them. You see, yeah, no one's going to do much damage to you with a blunted sword. Yeah, if, you know, I mean, compromise teaching, lovey-dovey stuff, the stuff that panders to people's sinful, you know, stuff. That, they love that, you know, I mean, all the tapes and all the ministry they can get, stuff like that. But true biblical teaching that is uncompromising and moves in the spirit, anointed of God, that slices right to our hearts. And that is why Christians find anointed biblical teaching too hot to handle. It cuts away pretense and sham, which is exactly what it's supposed to do. And of course the thing is that what this leads to, alright, uh, is the fact that it leads to a confidence no longer in ourselves, but confidence in the Lord. Paul says here in verse 3, We are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, and that's what the Word of God does. When it slices us up and we really get a good look at our sinful hearts and sinful natures, believe me, if you're willing to make a true assessment of yourself in the light of the sword of the Spirit, you will be far less inclined to put any confidence in yourself whatsoever. The Christian life is confidence in the Lord. Not what we're able to do, it's what Jesus is able to do. Go to Jeremiah. Let's see a bit more from Jeremiah. You know, we've seen Jeremiah quoted in, um, in Hebrews. Let's uh, go directly to Jeremiah, and if you find chapter 17. It may seem a strange thing to you, but the verses I'm going to read are some of my favourite verses in the Bible. I love these verses. 
Jeremiah 17. First of all, we'll, uh, we'll read verse 9 in the first uh, part of um, verse 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the mind and try the heart. Now there's the word of God. There's the sword of the Spirit. But look, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now there is God's verdict on you and I of ourselves. That is us in the flesh. Deceitful and desperately wicked. Go back into verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. The Old Testament says we live by the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. And here Jeremiah said, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his arm, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. You see, left to ourselves, even as Christians, our confidence, our trust is in ourselves. The word of God comes in, you know, swish, swish, slice, 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 shows us for what we are, shows us ourselves for what we are. And then you realise, hey, I can't trust in myself. I've got an evil heart that is deceiving me the whole time. I've got to look to the Lord. It's no use me depending on my strength. My arm can do nothing. I've got to look to the Lord. It's got to be Jesus and not me. I've got to be supported by the arm of the Lord, as it were, not by my own power, my own arm. All right. And this is what Paul says. He says, look, circumcision, all right, was merely an outward symbol of this. God dealing with our sinful natures as we follow him. And he says the whole idea is that the Lord doesn't want us to trust ourselves at all. He wants us to be trusting purely and only in him. And of course the problem with the circumcision party and that false teaching was what? They were trusting in their ability to obey the law. The law. They were trusting in themselves and not in the Lord. And Paul says the true circumcision are people who are being dealt with in their hearts by God and who are learning far from, you know, trusting in themselves. They're trusting only in the Lord. All right. Now, we'll read verse 4 through to verse 6 now, and you'll see how he continues this argument. All right. What he's done, he's dealt with the circumcision party, okay, and he said, load of rubbish, and he says, in any way, circumcision, it represented this. Actual circumcision itself has now fallen away. The reality has come. And this is the reality of what it is. And he says it's the opposite of trusting in yourself. Listen to this. He says, though I'm, you know, he says, we are the true circumcision who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then verse 4 he goes on, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor as of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now what Paul does here, remember, he's coming against the teaching of the circumcision party, alright? And Paul's argument here is quite simply this, he outlines all the credentials he's got as far as trusting in himself goes. Now what was Paul's background? It was quite simply this, Paul's background was that he was an Israelite par excellence. He was a Jew par excellence. And he says, that as far as the externalities of the law went, the law of Moses, the tradition of the elders, 
which weren't the law of Moses, but the Pharisees were under them as well. Tradition of the elders weren't biblical, but both applied the law of Moses and tradition of the elders. Paul says, as far as that lot goes, which were only concerned with what you do externally, he says, as far as all that went, I was blameless. So he's saying the circumcision party think they've got certain spiritual credentials, do they? He says, well, look at mine, chaps. And he was everything the circumcision party was and more. And he goes so far as to say he was blameless as far as the law was concerned. You couldn't have faulted him according to the law of Moses or the tradition of the elders. Now here is precisely the point that I was making last week about the law. That the law cannot save anyone. We saw it was never designed to. I mean, you won't get BBC to our mom, you know, microwave. It was never designed to save anyone. The law was merely there to reveal sin. It was the straight edge to reveal the bent, all right? But the problem with the law, not only can it not save anyone, but it's got a limitation other than that, and it's this. But to a hypocrite, as far as a good religious person who's a hypocrite is concerned, the law can't even reveal sin. You see how limited the law is? Because Paul was under the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, what effect did the law have on him? Did it reveal his sin to him? Absolutely not. All the law revealed to Paul, because Paul was so self-righteous and self-deceived, all right, all it revealed to him was how committed to God he was, how holy he was, how saved he therefore was. Now, can you see the point about the law? It's got a very limited purpose. At the very best, it reveals sin. Can't save anyone. But if you've got a religious hypocrite, a self-righteous Pharisee type person, then the law can't even reveal their sin to them because they just convince themselves that they're obeying the law and therefore aren't they wonderful, aren't they righteous, isn't God pleased with them? That was the effect it had on Paul before he had his eyes opened. So Paul... His assessment, as he looks back before he was a Christian, his assessment of himself was as far as the law was concerned, he says here, I was blameless, and yet I was persecuting Christians, he says. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now there you have it. There is religion for you. Paul, in his religious phase, all right, so zealous to do God's work, which is what his religious zeal required of him, that he was busy persecuting Christians. Now there is the deception of religion. And can you understand why Paul was prepared to have no truck whatsoever with Christians who were still into all that? Is he? Because the circumcision party were carrying that deception with them over into their Christian lives. And Paul would just have nothing to do with it at all. But what he's doing here is he says, right, you circumcision party, you're so proud of your credentials. He says, well, look at mine. Mine are even better than yours. But as we're going to see, the point was, Paul wasn't part of the circumcision party. Let's go down into verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, because everything he had under the law as a Pharisee before he was you know, a Christian, he, he gloried in it. That was his pride. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul has been outlining his religious background, all right? And he says, right, you've got your religious background and that's made you a member of the circumcision party or whatever. He says, look at mine. 
I was no different to how you are now, all right? But what Paul says, in regards to my background, the circumcision party brought their background into Christianity. What was Paul's verdict on his background? He discounted it all. He completely threw it away. Paul realised, when he became a Christian, that it was a choice between all that. It was a choice between his religiosity and Jesus. He realised it was a choice, one or the other. And of course, he chose Jesus. Now, there's something tremendously important here in regards to the circumcision party and in regards to false teaching in general because we, thought, you know, we saw last time that the circumcision party are merely representing any Christians into demonstrably unbiblical teaching. All right. Now, here's the thing. If Paul could discount all the rubbish that the circumcision party were into, given that Paul's background was identical to the circumcision party, Paul had grown up from the very same seeds as these Christians who were still into the circumcision and the law. Paul's background was identical to them, perhaps a little more so. All right? Now here's the question. If Paul could renounce it all and throw it away, all right, then why couldn't they? Now there's something very important here. Many Christians seem to think in regards to false teaching, that it's inevitable that you're going to go along with it. Oh, but it's our background, what do you expect? Now, Paul's background was identical to the circumcision party. Now, Paul could be free of it all. He was a Christian. The circumcision party were Christians, but they weren't free of it all. So why could Paul get free of it, but the circumcision party couldn't? What was the difference? Why was Paul so different to them? They had exactly the same background. They came from exactly the same religious soil, if you see what I mean, when they got converted. So why was it that Paul managed to throw all that rubbish away, but the circumcision party was still you know, holding on to it? Well, why couldn't the circumcision party get free? The answer is this. It was pride. They didn't want to get free. If Christians remain in bondage to false teaching, it's because they want to. You see, the whole point was the circumcision party, they prided themselves on their false teaching. The nature of their false teaching, that a Gentile had to become a Jew, you know, really to follow Jesus, gave them an elitism because they were already Jews. You see? They prided themselves in their false teaching, and the point is their false teaching continuously pandered to their pride. Can you see the spiral that they were in? And the reason that Paul got free of it and rejected it and the circumcision party didn't is because the circumcision party were not prepared to humble themselves before God and admit they were wrong. Paul the Apostle was prepared to humble himself before God and admit he'd been wrong about his entire religious background. Now that is the single reason why so many Christians today hold the word of God so lightly and stick with such blatantly unbiblical stuff that they stick with. It's because all false teaching somehow differs according to the teaching, but all false teaching will pander in some way to the sinful nature. Be it pride, be it rebellion, be it selfishness, or whatever. I mean, for instance, example, I mean, you know, not a real big deal in this country particularly yet, but take the prosperity doctrine, you know, the prosperity gospel. You know, the closer you are to God, the richer you'll get. Why are so many Christians 
really held and into that clearly unbiblical doctrine that closeness to God means more money. All right? Why are so many Christians in bondage to that? I'll tell you, because they want lots of money. It's greed. You see, that's exactly the point. All false teaching panders somewhere to our sinful natures. And this is why false teaching is categorised in the Bible as sin. And it is why also, uh, when we did, were doing the Church Life series and did the whole thing about excommunicating, you know, putting believers out of the church, all right, we saw that it's not only for moral reasons, it's not, you know, say if people are in, in blatant, unrepentant sin, that's a reason to chuck someone out of the church if they refuse to admit that sin and put it right. But also false teaching is excommunicable. And that's why. Because false teaching panders to the sinful nature. To be in bondage to a false teaching is because there's something in that false teaching that suits your sinful nature. You want that false teaching to be true and therefore resist even the word of God coming at you in order to hold on to that false teaching. So therefore, that is the reason that false teaching is categorised as sin in the Bible. All false teaching panders to the sinful nature. And, you know, the circumcision party, their false teaching pandered to their religious self-righteousness as Jews, even though they were born-again Christians. All right. Now, at that point, all right, I've just been very dogmatic and hard in regards to false teaching, and always will be. But we just need to put one proviso. There is a difference between a Christian being into false teaching and being genuinely mistaken and wrong, is it? Because after all, if the only teaching you've heard is false teaching, it's understandable that you accept it, all right? So there's a difference between being hardened into false teaching and just being honestly wrong because of lack of info. But, all right, although there's a difference between them, okay, we need to be able to tell them apart. And you can tell them apart like this. If a Christian is into a false teaching and it's merely that they're mistaken, that they've been genuinely misled as opposed to being hardened in it, you'll know that because should they have any means come to them to demonstrate that their teaching isn't right from the Bible, they'll immediately reject that false teaching. And they'll say, oh gee, thanks. You see? However, my experience of many, many Christians, time and time again, with more Christians than I could number, and on more issues than I could actually list. I've had Christians acknowledge to me that something they're believing is not biblical. Because after all, when you're really putting the Bible to them, there's no denying it, is there? So again and again and again, I've seen Christians acknowledge that what they're doing or believing here and there isn't what the Bible teaches, and yet they still won't renounce it. They are people into the sin of false teaching. All right? However, there are other Christians that when they realise, oh yeah, that's wrong, isn't it? Oh, thanks. See, that's no problem. They were right with God all the time. Got to make that distinction. But sadly, there are all too many people, Christians, who they do get access to the actual biblical facts of the matter, and yet they still hang on to their false teaching, you see. Um, now, Paul... The difference between Paul and the circumcision party, they all came from the same background, but Paul was right in his heart towards God. When he was genuinely mistaken, he was open to being corrected, and as soon as he saw the truth, he dropped what he was believing before. Paul maintained this posture. He daren't disagree with God. See? 
Now, that is the healthy posture to have. Any Christian who daren't disagree with God because he knows the fear of the Lord or she knows the fear of the Lord, there is safety. All right? Think of it. How dare we knowingly go against the Bible? How dare we do it? Yet Christians do it so freely. Just think of the evil, and remember Paul in regards to the false teaching of the circumcision party, what did he call them? Dogs and evil workers. What an evil it is when our pride finds a better way of doing something than God's revealed way. I mean, the arrogance of that, we're straight back to Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, now don't do this whatever you do because you're going to wreck your lives. So what do they do? They, they, they go and do it. They sort of think, no, no, God, God must be wrong about that. No, our way is better. That is the basis of all sin, believing that our way is better than God's way. Now, Paul would not dare muck around with God when he knew something was the revealed will of God. That was it, as far as he was concerned. There was no going against it. Let's keep reading verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse, and that is a very interesting word which we'll be onto in a few moments, and count them as refuse, um, I've lost, in order that I might gain Christ. You see, Paul, his attitude was, he's thrown the whole caboodle away. All this religious stuff that the circumcision party of Christians are into, remember they were Christians, all that religious, unbiblical stuff that Paul came out of, he has thrown the whole caboodle away. And he says, I count everything as loss. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, there's something important here. In the context here, when Paul says, um, you know, sort of, um, I count everything as loss, what is the context that he's talking about? What is this everything that he's counted as loss? All right. The context is false religious teaching and practice. Paul's not here talking about everything, everything. You know, almost as if if they'd had cars in those days, he'd have got shot of his car as well and had nothing. When he says, you know, I, you know, that, that I count everything as loss, he's not, you know, saying that everything he has he's thrown away. That everything is in the context of religious thinking. All right. So he's not hereby saying that anything Paul had he threw away. No, he's talking about false religious ideas, all right? And that what he's saying is that when it comes to his religious ideas, okay, as a good Pharisee, he says, I count it all as loss. I have thrown the whole caboodle away. In fact, he goes further. He says, as far as I'm concerned, it is actually refuse. Now, I think you'll get the point if I tell you that that is an over-polite rendering of the Greek word. The Greek word here is skubalon, and it denotes two things. It denotes, firstly, excrement, human wastage. That's the first, that is the word he uses here. And then, secondly, it was used, for instance, for the leftovers from a feast that get chucked off the feasting table. So, the part of a meal that isn't wanted because no one, no one wants it, and it sort of sits on the table, festering away, and gets chucked on the floor and goes rotten. All right. Now, they are the two uses of that word in the Greek. So, what Paul is saying, referring to his background, which was the same religious background as the circumcision party Christians came from, Paul says, I've thrown it all away 
He says, all you things that you Christians in the circumcision party, all these teachings that aren't biblical, they're so dear to you, they mean so much to you, he says, as far as I'm concerned, they're nothing but excrement. Paul could be very strong when he wanted to. Now, there's a double-barreled meaning to this word as well, all right, in regards to the fact that it also means that, you know, the putrid leftovers of food from a feast, all right. Now, in the ancient world, well, not only in the ancient world, I mean, you know, just go back to, uh, you know, Henry VIII and stuff like that, medieval England. Uh, one of the things that tended to denote banquets, okay, um, is that when, when important persons or rich people held banquets, there'd be this massive hall and there'd be this massive table and, you know, there'd be loads and loads of people there. And one of the things that characterised the ancient world in regards to its feasts and its banquets and this was that there were forever dogs roaming around. Kings in particular, they loved dogs. You know, loads and loads of dogs wandering around. Not wild dogs, they were pets, but having said that, they were free to roam wild, all right? Now then, the point about these dogs at any feast, but certainly true of Jewish feasts, all right, these dogs who were roaming around, it was the dogs what got the leftovers, all right? The dogs got this refuse that was under the table, all right? They got the leftovers. Now, do you remember, okay, uh, you know, last time we were seeing that the, Christ that the Jews, the self-righteous Jews at the time of Jesus and Paul, they regarded the Gentiles as dogs. They called the Gentiles dogs. Now, we can go further into the idea of why they did that. And it was for this reason. The Jews considered that they, they were sitting at God's banqueting table getting his best. Why? Well, because they were Jews. So the Jews, as it were, were seated at God's feasting table and they were getting the best that God had to offer. Now, where did that leave the Gentiles? Well, I'll tell you. That left the Gentiles getting the itty-bitty pieces of God that the Jews saw fit to cast them. See? So the point is, you've got people at a, a feasting table. You know, and they're munching through the grub and they think, oh, no, that leg of lamb, that's a bit fatty, that is. And chuck it to a dog, I don't want it. Woman, and dog jumps on it. Now, that's the picture. The Jews, they considered that they were God's best and they were getting the fat of the land when it came to God's blessing. And for the Gentiles, who are mere Gentiles, not the chosen people, they got whatever blessing the Jews cared to throw at them, you know. When God had given his best to the Jews, all right, the Gentiles got what was left over, all right. And that was why the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. They were only fit for God's second best once the Jews had got through his best. Can you see? That was the arrogance of the Jews calling all right, the Gentiles dogs. Now, we saw last time that Paul called the circumcision party dogs. He said, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. So we saw there that he called the circumcision party what the circumcision party rudely called the Gentiles. So he called them dogs, which is what they called the Gentiles, and now he calls their beliefs skewballon, <laughs> a load of. That is what he says. But with the double-barreled meaning, all right, what he's saying is, remember, these Christians of the circumcision party, they have brought over into their Christian lives that they, they got God's best, and the Gentiles got the crumbs that they threw under the table. All right? And, of course, that attitude was just incredibly self-righteous. Right? So Paul has called them dogs, which is what they called the Gentiles. But now, he uses the word of their beliefs. He says, your belief 
Your beliefs are in fact the putrid leftovers of a feast. What they considered to be God's best that they were having as a circumcision party, Paul says in actual fact that what you've got, your beliefs and teachings, they're the mildewy refuse lying under the table. Now, what Paul is saying to them is literally this. Of their teaching, these beliefs that they adhere to, Paul is saying simply this, yuck, I'm not eating that rubbish anymore. Paul could not have been more disparaging or ruder about these people and their teachings. He really couldn't, and they knew exactly what he was saying behind all this word play and calling them dogs and, you know, and sort of like calling their teachings skew ballon. Refuse, Paul says. I've, I've left it all behind. I've thrown it all away. We've seen that Paul had exactly the same background as the circumcision party, right? So if he could get free of it, anyone could be free of it, right? And Paul was all the better to speak because he was once like they were. Before he was a Christian, he was exactly like they were before they were Christians. But when Paul became a Christian, he changed. But when they became Christians, they didn't change. And that was his argument with them. They brought their former life's religious teachings over into their Christian lives. And of course their former teachings were wrong. And Paul's argument basically, he's saying, well, that there is no excuse for these people. I got free, they are without excuse. Now last time we were applying all that, you know, because Paul's argument with the circumcision party was simply this. They were into unbiblical teachings and practices. So therefore, we related it to the whole ecumenical Christian unity thing today, didn't we? Okay. Now then, I want to throw this out in exactly the same vein. Okay. In regards to me personally, I was brought up in the Anglican Church. When I became a Christian, I remained in the Anglican Church very stoutly. And it was no argument with the Anglican Church that forced me out of it. It was problems within just that individual church. At which point, I went and became a Baptist. And for a long, long time, I was in the Baptist church. I studied at a Methodist Bible college, which accepted people from whatever church they wanted to come from. So my background is I was an Anglican, I was a Baptist. I was a Methodist by virtue of studying at Methodist Bible College, but the Methodist Bible College was interdenominational. Up until 12 years or so ago, I encouraged Christians with everything I had for them to stay in their churches. I made no bones about the fact it was wrong to come out of a church and start something new. No, God wants to retrieve the churches. This was what I preached. All right? Now, here's the point. If I've got free of all that rubbish, why can't they? I was in it up to my neck. God rescued me. Why does every, you know, so many other Christians have to remain in it? Can you see the point? And it boils down to a question of simply this. Are people willing? Are they willing? You see, the point is that as God, as I understood his word more, uh, as I got to know the Lord better, I was, you know, sort of like admitting uh, the pride, the error. Um, you know, the religiosity, the self-righteousness, and after all, I had a ministry. Huh? 
So oh, it's full time, you know, full time Bible teacher. Well, a lot, a lot rides on that. Now you see, the point is, there was no way I could have known that all those years away because as you grow, you learn more. But the point is, as God was communicating all this to me, I admitted it. Can you see, when I saw I was wrong, I thought, well, I don't want to be wrong. Can you see? So. My question is, why don't other Christians get out of all their false teachings? Because I was into it all once. How come I've got out of it and they haven't got out of it? Well, it's purely a question of this. Are people willing? Are they willing to pay the price? And we'll be coming on to that in just a moment. But Paul's argument here was that in order to gain Christ, because Paul didn't just want to be a convert. He wanted to be all out for Jesus. He wanted everything of Jesus he could get. And he realised that that meant that anything that Jesus showed him that was incompatible with his will had to go. You see, so in order to gain Christ, to really be a true disciple of Jesus, Paul had to throw all that away. So any Christian who really wants to be a true disciple, you'll see a willingness for them to throw all their false teachings away. But when you see such resistance, Christians so stubbornly refusing to do it, what does that tell us? They don't want to be true disciples. Their false teachings suit their sinful natures. Now, Paul knew that it was a choice. There was no sitting on the fence. His choice was it's God's will or it's man's will. And there is no sitting on the fence. And he chose God's will, which went again every, against everything that he had in his background. But Paul says, right, I chuck it all away. It's excrement as far as I'm concerned. That was how wholehearted, how sold out to God Paul was. It's one or the other. God's will, man's will. And how do you divide between the two? The scriptures. It's as simple as that. Complete commitment to Jesus is complete commitment to what the Word of God says. And no knowing deviation from it. We're all deviating from it in regards to things we don't know yet. Obviously, we've all got more growing to do, as we will see in the next study. But the point is, there will be no knowing, conscious, going against the Word of God if someone is really out and out, as was Paul, to follow Jesus. Now, in regards to the circumcision party, we're, we're more or less through with them. And I just want to end uh, in, in, on that bit, because we're moving on now. Uh, but if you go to Titus, you get 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and you get Titus. And remember, we were seeing quite simply that the circumcision party represent any unbiblical teaching. All right, as simple as that. Christians into unbiblical teachings and practices, okay? Now, I read the first bit of this verse last week, but now I want to read uh, a few verses through. Titus chapter 1, and we're going to start reading from verse 9. Now, this is Paul talking about the qualifications of um, a bishop. Bishop being another word for elder, being another word for pastor, just interchangeable words, all right? Okay, now... He says, he, that is an elder, or a bishop, or a pastor, whatever word you prefer, he must hold firm to the sure word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. This is part of an elder's job. And confute means to rebuke and expose. It means to expose what it is and rebuke it. It includes a moral declaration against it, all right? Not just proving that something's wrong but proving it's wrong from the scriptures and then bringing to bear a judgment on its immoral nature because it's disagreeing with God and that is an immoral thing to do. We're supposed to live in submission to God, not in independence from it. And then he goes on, he says, for there are many insubordinate men. Insubordinate men, insubordinate without being under authority. All right, many insubordinate men, empty talkers, waffle, 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 right, the balloon brigade. Just add hot air, see? Uh, empty talkers and deceivers, 
because all false teaching is deceiving people, especially the circumcision party. So we know he's talking about Christians here. Not only the circumcision party, but especially the circumcision party. This is Paul's, you know, this is Paul talking about a brother Christians, all right. He says, they must be silenced. Now then, must they be tolerated? No, silenced. Must they be given airtime? No, they must be silenced. <laughs> All right. Since they are upsetting whole families. See, false teaching gets in. The average Christian I know, their biggest problem is their church. And when whole families are members of a particular church, whole families, their biggest problem is their church. And most Christians I meet, their biggest problem is their church. <laughs> All right? Because these deceivers who lead the churches, these empty talkers, all right, these insubordinate men who are not under God's authority, they upset whole families by teaching for base gain. Now, I don't think that's just money. Not just money. A lot of people are in the Christian leadership business because they want the respect. It's a good position, isn't it? You see? Automatic, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, automatic acceptance in the community. You know, and Jesus said about the Pharisees, he said, you know, they love the salutations in the marketplaces. Oh, they love it. The special seats at the feasts. See? Well, the Bible says that leaders are servants. They're not the people with the special seats at the feasts. They're the servants. They're the ones bringing the food round. That's what I'm doing tonight. I'm bringing the food round, aren't I? You know, this is spiritual food. All right. And he says, teaching for base gain, for totally wrong motives, pride and stuff like that. And some people do it for money. I mean, you've all been in these appeals when, when, you know, these meetings where the leaders, they screw every last penny out of you that they can. You know, all the appeals, the emotionality, the pressure, all right? Teaching for base gain, what they have no right to teach. Why don't they have any right to teach it? Because we're only authorised to teach what the Word of God says. There is no authority outside of the Word of God, you see. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I'm not going to go into the background of that saying. But he says, this testimony is true. He's talking about Christians here, Christian ministers, Christian leaders. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. I mean, this isn't there, there, go along with them, compromise. Paul says, rebuke them sharply. Don't put up with them, all right? That they may be sound in the faith. Instead of giving heed to Jewish myths, as in the case of the circumcision party, or to commands of men who reject the truth. Now, when we start talking things like infant baptism, apostolic succession, when we start talking shepherding movements, you know, the apostles who have control of the area, shepherds who have control of, you know, and that the word of God only passes down them, okay? When we're talking about loads and loads of practices, you all know them, you've come from churches that are into them. What are they but mythology? What are they but the commands of men who reject the truth? And this is Paul's attitude. And this must be our attitude as well, of the Christians, the leaders who are propagating demonstrably untrue teaching, demonstrably unbiblical teaching, okay? Paul calls them insubordinate, empty talkers, all right, uh, and deceivers, who must be silenced. And if they do it in your presence, rebuke them sharply. That is Paul's attitude. And as I said last week, that's our attitude here to false teaching. Okay. So then, this is Paul, okay, in regards to it. And he said, he said, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've thrown all that away, all the false teaching, in order that I might gain Christ. Now in verse 9, he goes on to say, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, because, I mean, the, the circumcision part, it was what they did, not what God did. He says, 
But, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Paul's saying, look, I know that the only way I can go on with the Lord, all right, the only basis for me living the Christian life, he says, is certainly not my righteousness, because Paul, unlike the circumcision party, realised he didn't have any. He knew that the Christian life wasn't his righteousness, it was the righteousness of Jesus. Now, the law, Christians who were living under the law, the circumcision party, that presupposes a righteousness of your own. You see? And yet the point is, we have no righteousness of our own. It is pure rebellion and self-righteousness. So therefore, the Christians, the circumcision party, who thought our relationship with God depends on us obeying the law, you know, it depends on what we do, chaps, you see. Well, obviously, they believed they had a righteousness of their own, but they didn't, they were deceived. It was sheer rebellious pride. But also, just back to false teaching, if someone is into a teaching or a practice that goes against the Bible, then they are presupposing that they have their own wisdom. You see? The folly of that, the Bible is God's wisdom. If you do something differently from the Bible, you're saying, no, my idea is better. You see? You think you're wiser than God. There's a whole thing with false teaching. Okay. So therefore, what Paul is saying, look, my walk with Jesus, my discipleship, it does not depend in the slightest on me or my abilities. This is what the Lord is doing, for I am just a helpless sinner and can be nothing other than. Paul is stripped of the self-righteousness of the circumcision party. He puts no stock at all on his religious background like they did. He knows that before God he's naked. He's naked. Elsewhere, Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. We have no righteousness of our own, but we can have Jesus's. But in order to have Jesus's righteousness, you've got to first be convinced that you have none of your own. You see? You're only going to go and ask someone for money, all right, when you haven't got any. You see? As long as you think you've got money, you don't need to go and ask for it. And that is why in the Old Testament, you know, it's blessed, uh, sorry, in the New Testament, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why poor? Because they haven't got any resources of their own. And in Isaiah 55, ye that have no money, come by. How do you get something from God? Well, you've got to make sure you can't afford it. <laughs> when you can't afford it, when you've got nothing to contribute towards it, it's yours. But as long as we think we've got something to contribute towards it, we don't have it. God says, no, you've still got your own resources, you keep living off of them. All right. Paul was a man at the end of himself. He knew he had no spiritual resources whatsoever. Just, just go over in, uh, back into Isaiah 64. <clears throat> I'll read each of these verses in verse 6. Paul, uh, here Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now then, in the... Uh, I think it's the AV, that is the verse, and uh, you know, uh, our righteousness is to God as filthy rags. In the Hebrew, this here is translated into polluted garment. It, it, it means, literally, it's referring to the menstrual cycle. That is what the word here means. Absolute death. The most righteous, the best thing that we've ever done to God is merely a kind of, um, not even a miscarriage, it doesn't even go that far. It's the uncleanness of the menstrual cycle, a potential life that, that never was and has to be ejected from the body because it's unclean. And that is God's opinion of the most righteous thing each one of us has ever done. This is what the Bible says, we have no righteousness of our own. Uh, back into Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23. 
We have none of our own. But here, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now can you see? We have no righteousness of our own. But, if we accept it, Jesus has come so he can be our righteousness. Go over into Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, and first of all, chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, the point about that, you don't hunger and thirst for what you've got. You see? You don't hunger and, you know, you don't thirst on a hot day when you're standing by your tap. You see, you might be thirsty, but you drink. Here, it's those who are panting after it. You know, it's out of their reach, but they're going for it anyway. You only hunger and thirst for what you haven't got. So when Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he's talking about people who are hungering and thirsting after it precisely because they know they haven't got it. And for them to have it, they've got to get it from elsewhere. Now, why shall they be satisfied? Well, because Jesus will be their righteousness. Okay. Chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see? To seek the kingdom of God, to seek after everything that God has for our life, includes seeking his righteousness. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. And this is Paul talking. Um, it says, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness. God has made Jesus our righteousness. If we are to live holy and righteous lives, then it is not going to be through anything that we do. We don't have it in us. It's going to be through Jesus living through us. This is why Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own based on law. He says, I haven't got any. But a righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he goes on, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now there are two things there. What Paul is saying, he says, I'm after the righteousness of God himself. He says, I'm wanting, he's, you know, yeah, he was free from the penalty of sin. If you've accepted Jesus as your saviour, you are forever free from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is not now our problem, that is dealt with. Nothing can stop us going to heaven if we're born again. Our problem is the power of sin. The power of sin. Do we want freedom progressively from the power of sin? Well, my answer to that is yes. Paul's answer to that was yes. But in order to get it, there was a twofold, two things working together in a process. First of all, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share his suffering. All right? So firstly, Paul says, I want to share his sufferings. If I'm to be... If I'm to come into the righteousness of Jesus, then to get there, I've got to share his sufferings. Now, what are the sufferings of Jesus? 
Now, when the Bible talks about the sufferings of Jesus, in Hebrews it says that Jesus was made perfect or made complete, got ready for what God had called him to do through the things that he suffered. The sufferings of Jesus were far more than just on the cross. That was completely different. Jesus suffered throughout his life quite separately from the suffering on the cross. And when the Bible talks about sharing the sufferings of Jesus, it's not talking about his sufferings on the cross. Why? Well, because on the cross, Jesus suffered for other people's sins. <laughs> All right. No, the point is this, to share his sufferings. What were the sufferings of Jesus? Rejection. He was despised and rejected of men. Now that is sharing the sufferings of Jesus. Because Jesus lived a holy life in the power of his Father in heaven, he therefore came against everything that the world was into and the world hated him. Therefore Jesus was rejected. Family, friends, religious authorities, Jesus was a completely rejected person. Now here's the point. If we're to live holy lives, if we're to come into the righteousness of Jesus, if we're to experience freedom from the power of sin in our lives, then that means being wholehearted for him. Wholehearted for him. Living in obedience to what the word of God says. Standing for the word of God and for nothing else. Now here's the point. If we do that, we too will be rejected. Family, friends, religious authorities, other Christians. We will ultimately be rejected wherever we go. If the world hated Jesus, which it did, and if we are wholeheartedly following Jesus, the world is going to hate us. And if there are other Christians who are still of the world rather than of the kingdom, can you see, they've got one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world, okay, then you and I come along, and if we're wholeheartedly for Jesus, their leg that's in the world is going to want to kick us. Their leg that's in the kingdom isn't, <laughs> but the leg that they've still got in the world is going to want to kick us because it's a convicting thing. The world hated Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him. If we stand for truth as Christians, then we too are going to be hated. We're going to find that uh, antagonism, friends, family, Christian friends, blah, 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 the whole caboodle. We're going to know rejection. We're going to know what it is to have people thinking everything that they can about us except what's true. Now that is just what we're... I mean, Jesus, he was called a demoniac. He was called a glutton. He was called a wine-bibber. Uh, you know, he was sort of thought of as someone, you know, well, why does he spend so much time with prostitutes? Aha. Uh -huh. He was illegitimate. He was a bastard. He was everything. You name it, Jesus was called it. Word was put out. The rumours were spread. Jesus lived with that through his whole life. And even his own family didn't believe in him. Although some of them believed in him. I mean, Mary did, but she lost it, all right? And some of his brothers and sisters, but not all of them, came, came to him after he rose again from the dead. But Jesus was rejected all the way around. And Paul says, I want that. I want a share in the sufferings of Jesus because that's how I'm going to grow in righteousness. How does it work? How does it work? Well, you see, the thing is this. When everyone's saying how awful you are, when everyone's murmuring about you, when everyone's believing really awful things about you, even worse things than you know are already true, <laughs> all right? Now, the point is, what does that do to your pride? Kills it off, doesn't it? Isn't it horrible? Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. That's the last thing you want. Everyone thinking well of you. Now, that panders to the sinful nature. But a good bit of rejection. It humbles us, doesn't it? And we find ourselves, oh, oh, how dare they say that about me? Oh, 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 pound of flesh time. No, that's the sinful nature reacting. But it exposes it. And then it's up to us, oh Lord, sorry, I repent of that. Is he? So, I mean, a good bit of rumour mongering, being rejected for the sake of Jesus, it kills off our pride. And this is, you know, what God wants to do. He wants to kill us off. If only we would lie down. And Paul says, not only do I want to share in his sufferings, I want to be like him in his death. What well, funny thing to want. But Paul wanted it. What does he mean, I want to be like Jesus in his death? Well, it's quite simply this. What was Jesus' death? It was a death to sin, and it was a death 
to self-will. Now, Jesus wasn't dying for his own sin. He was dying for everyone else's. But his death was a death to sin. And it was a death to self-will because he didn't want to die. He said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It was a death to self-will, you see. Now, there's a link between the two. Sharing his sufferings, rejection, blah, 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 and being like him in his death. You see, the point is that Jesus' death was a death finally to himself. Now, the point is, we cannot overcome sin. I think we all know that, don't we? But we can let God overcome us. Now, that's holiness. It's not us overcoming sin, it's God overcoming us, all right? And it's up to us whether we're going to let God do it. And that means death to our pride. It means often a, a, real, a real tough time, okay? But really letting God deal with our evil hearts. Paul said in Romans, uh, in Galatians, sorry, it's no longer I but Christ. It, you know, I mean, Christian, I mean, Christians like the cross as a symbol. The Bible doesn't, doesn't mention it, all right? You know, the idea of the cross being the Christian symbol is not a biblical idea. But let's use it. What is a cross, all right? The I, and you cross it out. Now, th there you've got Christianity. I, that's me, and you cross it out. That's what being a disciple is. Becoming like Jesus in his death. Jesus crossed himself out. He wasn't worried about himself. He was only worried about other people. So the point is rejection, hardship, suffering, all these things, they're good for us. They're good for us. They're doing God's work. They're preventing us getting what our sinful nature wants. They're cutting, it's cutting against our will. Isn't it fun? But, but this, this is what Paul says. He says, yes, this is what I want because I want to be uh, coming in more and more to the righteousness of Jesus. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. See what Peter has to say about this. 1 Peter chapter 4. Ah, oh, it's a jolly one tonight, you know. 1 Peter chapter 4, let's, let's, let's just read from uh, verse 12. He says, Beloved, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now then, what Paul, you know, what Peter's saying here. He's writing to Christians who were having a terrible time. Terrible time they were having. And I don't know, maybe they'd even written a letter to him and saying, look, where's all the blessings? You know, I mean, we've, we've, we've just read, you know, we've just been to the Christian bookshop and we've got all these books and, and there's all these fantastic and this incredible life we're going to have and we're just getting bashed, everything's going wrong. And Peter's writing back and he says, well, you know, is that odd? He says, why do you think that's strange? I mean, what did Jesus promise you? He promised you persecution. He promised you, you know, uh, that you'd be rejected. He promised you tribulation. You know, he promised you that he'd deal with you. He promised you that he'd humble you. You know, that you'd have to be willing to lose your life in order to gain him. Peter's saying, well, you know, what, what's surprising? Isn't this what we told you? I mean, the early church preached through much tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul says, don't be surprised. He says, this is the normal Christian life. Don't be surprised, he says. And he says, look, these fiery ordeals, they're coming on you to prove you, to prove you. Now, I mean, part of the picture here, okay, is the kind of, uh, oh, I can't think of the word for it, um, the crucible, you know, the iron worker. Uh, say you've got a lump of gold or silver. Now, it's contaminated. You know, it's got, it's got silver in it, but it's got or gold in it, but it's got a lot of dross in it. It's got muck in it, stuff that's valueless, all right? That's a lovely picture of us, all right? You know, because Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, you know, sort of like there's gold in them thar hills. And, and there's Jesus in that there you, you see. Now, the problem is, how does he come out? You see, all, the, all us, us, we're the dross, we're in the way. Our sinful natures. So, what do you do? Well, you get this lump, this metal. 
You think, well, all right, okay, we'll soon get the rubbish out of that. So you chuck it in the crucible, you see, and there's a massive fire underneath it. And you stoke it up and you blow it with the bellows and you turn the pressure up, something rotten, <laughs> you see. And the point is it melts. And as it melts, all the dross, all the rubbish, it comes to the top and then you skim it and you chuck it away, you see. And then there's a little less dross and a little bit more gold. Now, the Christian life is a continuous process of God doing that. That's why things go wrong. That's why sometimes there's great pressure. It's, it's, you know, it's getting chucked back in the crucible and boiled up, <laughs> you see, so that you melt and all the rubbish comes up, you know, because when everything's going great and when God answers your prayers before you pray them, and he does sometimes, I'm talking about the times when he doesn't, you see, but when there's real blessing, and there is sometimes, God does that, he gives us seasons of blessing just because he enjoys it, just because he loves it, he, you know, he loves to bless us. But the point is, if we only got seasons of blessing, I mean, well, our sinful natures wouldn't show, would we? You know, I mean, we'd just, just be going around with a halo all this. Oh, it's wonderful. I love Jesus so much. Wouldn't we, obviously? But when things go wrong, oh, spit, curse, <laughs> leave me alone, you know. Isn't it? That's when the sinful nature comes out. You know, I mean, when you get what you want, you're lovely. When I get what I want, I'm lovely. What am I like when I don't? That is the question. And that is how God tests our sinful natures, brings it to the surface. Sin is being revealed in you. Then you can, oh, Lord, yeah, I'm sorry. And in repentance, it's getting skimmed off. Can you see? That's the picture. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, I want to share Jesus' sufferings. I want to be like him in his death. I want to die to myself. It's a hard time, but that's what I want. Because in order, or while I'm going through that, okay, therefore I'm coming more and more into sharing his life. Now in verse 11, having said all that, he says that, if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, now, we've got to do just a little bit, a little bit of a sorting out here, okay? Because this is one of the verses, all right, that people or some people turn to, to say you can lose your salvation. And they say, look, even Paul here, he says, if the, you know, that if possible, it might not be, but if possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> all right, can you see? There's a potential there, isn't there, for that salvation isn't a dead certainty, even though you're born again. Now, the problem is in the Greek translation, all right? Uh, keep your finger in Philippians, but just go over to Romans 11. Romans 11 and verse 14, where we get the exact same phrase, the exact same phrase in the Greek, that in verse 11 in Philippians has been translated that if possible, all right? And in Romans 11 verse 14, all right, the phrase is this. Let's start reading from verse 3. He says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to. In order to. Now that there is the translation of the exact same phrase that in Philippians 3 they've translated that if possible. And it's in order to. Can you see which changes the meaning completely? In order to assumes that it naturally follows on. One thing, you know, that first and then that. That's the order. But when they translate it, if, you know, if possible, then it throws some doubt about it. So it's an incorrect translation, all right? It ought to be in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so there's a little point there. Uh, if you've got that, if possible, change that to in order that I might. All right, that, that, that is the Greek. But the point is, he's saying here, he's saying, I want to share in his sufferings, I want to know him in his death, blah, blah, blah. He says, in order that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, we've got to ask a question here, and it's this. What resurrection from the dead is he talking about? There's a genuine dilemma, 
Korite. There are two quite distinct resurrections from the dead he could be talking about. The first one, I mean, for instance, is he here talking about physical being raised from the dead, the rapture? Or is he talking about the spiritual being raised from the dead, i.e. victory over sin? Which one is he talking about? Well, the argument for the first one, some people say, well, he's talking about, you know, the actual literal resurrection from the dead, you know, like, i.e. you die and then at the rapture you get a new body. And they say he's talking about that uh, because in verse 21, which we'll get onto in a few weeks' time, he talks about the resurrection body, and we'll come onto that later. So some people, they say, yeah, he's talking about the physical resurrection from the dead because in verse 21 he mentions that very thing about our, you know, our bodies being changed, all right? So that's the first meeting. Uh, first meaning. However, I don't agree with that. And my reason is this, all right? <clears throat> in verse 12, and this is where we're going to start next time, all right? He says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. So having talked about that he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead, as we're going to see next time, he then goes on, he says, but not, you know, I'm not there yet. I haven't attained it yet. So he says, there's, you know, a resurrection that I want. I want to be part of a resurrection, all right? And then he goes on to say, but I haven't fully reached it yet. Now, the point is this. If he was indeed talking about physical resurrection here, then the point is, he'd be talking about what happens to him after he dies, because you get your resurrection body after you die, eventually. Now, it would be nonsensical if he's talking in verse 11 about getting his glorified body after he's dead. It will be a bit nonsensical. I mean, he's here writing a letter to them, and halfway through the letter he says, but Mark, you, I'm not fully there yet. Well, I mean, it's obvious he's not fully there. If he was, he'd be dead, and they wouldn't have got the letter in the first place. You see? So Paul is not here talking about the physical resurrection from the dead. This resurrection from the dead that he's talking about, what is it? He's been talking about the righteousness of Jesus. He's been talking about sharing Jesus' death to sin, the power of sin. He's talking about being raised more and more into the new life which has power over sin. That is what he's talking about. Greater death to self, the greater the death to self you experience, the greater the new life in Jesus will come through you, and that new life in Jesus doesn't sin. Uh, just, just go to Romans 6. I haven't time to go through this in detail, so you'll have to do that uh, some other time. But just briefly, in Romans 6, verses 1 to 11, Paul's argument is quite simply, look, when we were baptised, we died with Jesus. In baptism, we were buried with him. But when we were baptised, they didn't leave us under the water, they brought us up again. So he says, look, we've died to sin, but we've been raised up to a new life now, and it's a new life in which sin need not control us. That there is a progressive being set free from the power of sin in this new life. And that is what Paul's talking about. Baptism represents dead to sin, but alive to Christ. But it's not just talking about dying to your former life of sin when you weren't following Jesus and before you were saved. It's not just saying it's death to the former life. It's saying you're actually raised up to a new life of righteousness, which we have in Jesus. Go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. And uh, this is a verse that often uh, makes Christians scr scratch their heads a bit. 1 John 3 verse 9. No one born of God commits sin. See? No one born of God commits sin. For God's nature abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now what's he talking about there? This is the same John who brought in his gospel Jesus' teaching about being born again. 
And remember, Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All right. Now, let's follow through. Go to Colossians 3. All right. So, if you're born of God, you cannot sin. Oh, dear. I wonder what that means. Colossians chapter 3. Seen these verses a lot. And over the years, we'll see them a lot more. Verse 9. Colossians 3 verse 9, don't lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old nature with his practices and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off the old nature, put on the new nature. Go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verse 22. Put off the old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What have we got? Two natures. When you're born again you've still got the old sin nature but you get a new nature. And when John says that he, is he who is born of God does not sin, indeed cannot sin, our new nature cannot sin. The Jesus version BJ can't sin. But the problem is the old version BJ, me, myself and I, that's all we can do. Now, the Christian life is being brought out of the old nature, dying to the new nature, so uh, the old nature, so that the new nature, Jesus living through us, can come through more and more. And it's the tough times we go through that kill off that old nature and let the new nature through more and more. And what is the new nature? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who lives in us. John the Baptist said, He must increase and I must decrease. That was Paul's prayer. Okay, so verse 11, that's what Paul's talking about. He says, that's the resurrection from the dead. I want to attain more and more and more. I want to come more and more into freedom from my old nature and from the power of sin so that I'm living in the new nature, i.e. that it's Jesus living through me. And of course, the thing is that Paul, that was something he had to choose day by day. The day by day choice, is it what Jesus wants or is it what I want? This death to self, this being raised up to a new life in Christ will not happen just like that. It's not an automatic thing. It's not that, well, because someone's born again, this is therefore going to happen. No way is it automatic. It's something that has got to be willingly chosen and then embraced every day consciously. Won't come automatically. It's got to be, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after it. Now, around 1976, 77, I wouldn't like to give you an exact date, but I know exactly something that I did. Having come to a greater understanding of the Scriptures, I quite consciously, I quite willfully got down before God, not, not quite understanding what I was doing, but knowing it was God's will, and I said, Lord, lay the cross on me. I was reading in the Bible about this crucified life. I didn't know what, what the Bible was talking about. But I believed it because it was in the Bible. And I said, Lord, all I do know is it's not going to be easy. Lord, I embrace it. Put the cross on me. And I'll tell you, I went through years of hell. Because he did. I went through blackness, through despair for years and years and years. What the old mystics called the dark night of the soul. And every now and then it comes back. But someone who's carrying the cross, that will never be far away. Because it's brokenness. It's utter self-despair. It's that total revelation of the truth of ourselves. And it is a bitter pill to swallow. It's the removal of everything we hold dear that is not important to God and is getting in the way. 
And this, this is what Paul was saying, that's what I want to attain to. Now, next time we will continue and we're going to be seeing Paul's verdict on had he arrived or was he still on the way? Is it once and for all or is it a progressive thing that carries on throughout our Christian lives? And it's that that we'll turn to next time. So we will end it there.